you've got your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to take it and uh, turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. As you're turning there, one of the early church fathers that we read about in church history, uh, who happens to be one of my very favorite uh, figures from early church history, was a guy by the name of John Chrysostom. Now, Chrysostom was not his last name. Chrysostom was a nickname that he was given, and it literally means John with the golden mouth. And the reason he was given that name was because of his ability to preach. He was gifted as a preacher in the early church. He lived from 347 to 407 A.D., and he was known for using words to just powerfully declare Uh, the truth of the gospel. Well, there's a story that involves his life. Now, more than likely, it's, it's a fictional story, but it's a good story. It's said that he was brought in before the emperor, who said that if he would recant his faith in Christ, or if he wouldn't recant his faith in Christ, Chrysostom would be banished from the land. To which Chrysostom replied to the emperor, you cannot banish me, for the whole world is my father's land. The emperor then said, well, I'll take away all your property. Chrysostom replied, you cannot, for all my treasures are in heaven. The emperor said, then I'll exile you to a place where you have not a friend to speak to. And the preacher replied, you cannot, for in Jesus Christ I have a friend who is closer than a brother and he will remain with me forever. The emperor finally threatened him one final time and said, then I shall take away your life. And Chrysostom replied and said, you cannot, for my life is hidden with Christ in God, and I shall never die. And it said that the emperor looked around at those who were present in the room and said, what do you do with a man like that? Uh, It's an appropriate question to ask. What do you do with a man or a woman who simply refuses to bow down to the world's agenda? And it's an especially appropriate question as we come to Daniel chapter 3. In this chapter, we read the story of three Hebrew young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to a wicked king's agenda. Rather than going along with the crowd in disobedience to God and in idolatry, these three young men refused to bow down, and they determined to remain faithful to the Lord. So there in Daniel chapter 3 is where I want you to go. Uh, This story more than likely is familiar to most, especially if you grew up in Sunday school. I mean, who can't remember as a child being mesmerized in Sunday school by the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I can still, in my mind, remember those flannel graph pictures on the wall in my Sunday school class as an elementary school kid with those pictures of those boys getting ready to be cast into the fiery furnace. Well, the story begins here in this chapter with Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, uh, the king, who has a massive image that he has set up of himself, and he's commanded his empire to embrace this image and to worship this image. He issues an order to all of his government officials, an order that requires them to be at this dedication ceremony where they're forced to bow down to the image in a display of unity and solidarity. 
Those who refused to bow down when prompted to do so, they're told that they would be cast into the furnace. Now, rather than getting caught up with the pressure to conform to the king's desire, the Bible says that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they go against the grain. You might could say they swim upstream against a current of cultural unbelief. What do you do with men like that? Nebuchadnezzar thought that he could destroy them with fire. But as we shall soon see in this passage, the king found out that they would not bow, they would not budge, and they would not burn. So if you've got your Bible open there, I want you to look with me beginning in verse number 1, Daniel chapter 3, verse number 1. The Bible says that King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, notice how that emphasis, the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, it's used multiple times throughout this chapter. And it's, it's repeated multiple times for the sake of emphasis because the writer is wanting to convey this sense of, of what's really going on here. Here is a wicked man who has set up an image and he's declaring that people worship this image rather than give glory to the one true God of heaven. And so at least nine times you see that phrase, set up. The image is set up. It's used in, in, in these 30 verses of chapter 7. The word worship is used 11 times in the chapter. So, so what's going on here? Uh, really, it's an act of idolatry. Uh, verse 4 uh, says that the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, I want to stop reading right there. Uh, as the chapter progresses, we find out that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are singled out for their refusal to go along with the crowd. And they're called to stand before Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar then questions them as to why exactly they weren't bowing down like everyone else. And really in verses 16, 17, and 18, they give a defense of their faith. And it's one of the most powerful confessions of faith that we find in all of Scripture. Well, this angers Nebuchadnezzar. 
he orders that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than it had ever been heated before. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are bound. They're cast into the oven. And lo and behold, Nebuchadnezzar, when he looks into the furnace, he, he begins asking the question, did we not throw three men in the fire? How is it that I see four men in the fire? And he says, the fourth man looks like the son of God himself. And the chapter concludes with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego exiting the furnace and great glory is given to the God of heaven and Nebuchadnezzar issues a decree that no one should ever say anything against the God of these Hebrews. Now I want to preach from this thought this morning when faith is under fire. Now what I really want to do over the next two weeks, I want to take this chapter and I want to I want to condense it into at least two parts. And I really want us to consider the context uh, that we see here in verses 1 through 7 uh, in our time this morning. But this passage of Scripture, down through the ages, faithful believers have turned to this passage to find encouragement whenever they've been faced with their own version of a fiery furnace in life. But let me just be quick to say that this story does so much more than to simply uphold these Hebrew men as examples. It's certainly true that they are examples of courageous faith. But more important than that, this passage directs us to the glory of God as one who stands with his own in the furnaces of life. And aren't you grateful for that as a believer? He is the God who delivers his people. Uh, he is worthy of worship. He's worthy of obedience no matter uh, whether or not temporary deliverance comes. Now let's be honest, not everybody is delivered in a temporary sense from the furnaces of life. There have been many faithful believers down through the years who have faced the heat for their faith, they've suffered for it, even been persecuted and put to death for it. So the main emphasis in this passage is not that God always delivers us from the temporary situations that we encounter in life. Now, deliverance will come to God's people. Deliverance is promised to God's people. But that doesn't always mean it will come in this life. Deliverance is promised. Listen, I know heaven's my home. That's why men like Chrysostom could stand before the emperor and he knew that all of his treasures were in heaven because his life was hidden with Christ in God. That's not just true of him. That's true of me and you as believers in Jesus Christ. No matter how bad life around me gets, no matter how painful the circumstances of life get, uh, no matter uh, the cultural climate, whether it's, it's antagonistic toward Christianity or not, folks, we stand in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ as one who delivers his own. And that's what this passage of Scripture really emphasizes. And yet one of the key questions that should come into our minds when we read this story is this question. When faced with the threat of the world's furnace, will we remain confident in God's word no matter what the outcome may be? It's one thing for us to sit in this room and say, yes, no matter how difficult it may be to be a Christian in today's call, I'm going to stand for what's right. I'm going to share my faith. I'm not going to bow to the agenda of the world. It's one thing to say that, but it's another thing when you're put into the pressure cooker of life. So in this passage, there are really three things that I want to show you over the next couple of weeks from this passage. Um, the first one simply is expecting the furnace. 
as far as life is concerned. In a, in a world that's hostile to belief, in a world that, that is hostile to the faith, uh, you and I as believers ought to expect the furnace. And then there'll be something that I want to show you about experiencing the furnace and then exiting the furnace. We won't get to that today. We'll get to that a little bit later on. But, but expecting the furnace in life. Notice how it all begins, first of all, with the image of a wicked king. The image of a wicked king. Now, most scholars agree that the events of chapter 3 are perhaps more than a decade removed from the events of the previous chapter. Uh, in his commentary on the book of Daniel, Dr. John Walvoord said that the likely background for the events of Daniel chapter 3 follow an attempted coup against Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we know from history that that happened in 595 B.C. But he says of that, he says the event was significant enough to have been recorded in the Babylonian Chronicle as the major event of the year, this coup against Nebuchadnezzar. After the attempt failed, it's likely that Nebuchadnezzar summoned all his provincial rulers and uh, civic leaders back to Babylon for a loyalty oath. Now, the text doesn't say that that's what's going on, but evidently there's evidence from history that that kind of thing happened. So perhaps after having put down an attempt that challenged his authority, Nebuchadnezzar has a statue of gold constructed to remind those in his kingdom of his authority and his self-importance. Now beyond that, there's something else that's going on here. Uh, keep in mind the image of his dream back in chapter 2. You remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that bothered him? Nobody could uh, explain the dream or the meaning of the dream. Daniel comes along and Daniel offers the meaning and the interpretation. God gives it to Daniel. The image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream involved the statue made up of multiple different types of metals. The head was of gold. Uh, the chest and arms were silver, the belly and thighs were bronze, the legs were iron, and so on. But Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that he is the head of gold. The God of heaven had given him the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar would rule over this vast eastern empire for 43 years. He had subdued peoples. He had conquered lands. He had experienced one success right after another. World power was in his hands. And so the thought that he was the head of gold evidently gave him the big head. And all of his success went to his head and fueled his pride. And more than likely, he thought to himself, you know, wouldn't it really be nice if more of this statue in my dream were made of gold? Who really says that my kingdom has to go to someone else? So perhaps he's determining in his own might and his pride uh, that he, nobody's ever going to be a rival to his kingdom or to his power and that kind of thing. So rather than humbling himself, his power fuels his pride. He's a very proud man. And so he, he makes this image, um, an image of gold. He sets it up and he commands that everyone fall before it. Now, the size of this image was impressive. Verse 1 says that it was 60 cubits high. It was 6 cubits wide. As far as modern measurements, uh, a cubit was a little bit more than 18 inches. So that means that this image would have been more than 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. Just a massive golden monument. 
Uh, adding to the impressive height is, is the place where it stood. He has it constructed on the plain of Dura, which was not far from the city of Babylon. It was in a wide, open, flat space. You know, I don't know if you've ever driven across the, uh, uh, the Midwest, the Plain States, but just how flat it is. Uh, it doesn't take much for you to see something, you know, in the distance, uh, an object that stands up above everything else, and it just stands out for miles and miles. That's what's going on here. This image is observable from a great distance. In fact, it kind of is reminiscent of something that happened back in Genesis chapter 11, right there on that same plain. Because Genesis chapter 11 uh, says that the, the plains of Babylon, this becomes the place where the Tower of Babel was constructed. And the, builder, uh, the builders of that tower had the same intentions behind their monument. They determined in their pride that they were going to build a monument, a tower, the top of which would reach into heaven in defiance of God. It was an attempt to unify man in defiance of God. This is Nebuchadnezzar's motive here. He determined to build this monument unto himself, and he's going to use this monument to unify his empire. You might could say that the image represents the embodiment of his power and his agenda. And his motive is to elicit the worship and the obedience, the submission of those who are his subjects. So again, in his pride, he's determined to, uh, to see to it that his kingdom has no rivals. He issues this decree. All of his government officials were required to be at the dedication ceremony. Now, look at the, look at the words that are mentioned, the list of, of who's who. You have satraps. What in the world was a satrap? Well, it was an administrator or a chief representative. All right, his, his chief representatives, his cabinet members, Prefects, these were commanders or military chiefs. The governors were those who presided over civil affairs. Counselors were legal representatives. Treasurers, those who were in the financial world of Babylon. Justices, those who were the guardians of the law, they were required to be there. Magistrates, these were local judges scattered all throughout the empire. So the idea is every level of Babylonian government and society are forced to come to this dedication ceremony of Nebuchadnezzar's image. And the king's agenda was to be embraced by every single person in his empire. To not embrace the image, to not go along with the crowd, was viewed as an act of high treason. To not worship the image was punishable by death in a fiery furnace. So here's, here's what I want you to see is happening here. You've got this wicked king who's trying to unite his empire culturally, politically, and religiously. Uh, again, you think about his empire, it spanned the whole east. Uh, there were a number of different peoples that he had conquered, different cultures that he had overcome different types of local governments that his government had overcome. And now he's forcing everyone under the same umbrella approach. Now let me tell you, that's not something that was just strictly limited to Nebuchadnezzar in history. Y'all know that dictators all throughout history have done this same thing. 
Uh, Stalin did the same thing. Chairman Mao, father of the modern communist China, did the same thing. Uh, Hitler did the same thing. Often in an act of their power and their tyranny, they, they have pictures of themselves put up in city squares. They put down any dissenters whatsoever. But it's not just true of dictators, but folks, this is the way the world of man has always operated. And the Bible says that in the last days, this is the same thing that the Antichrist is going to do. The Antichrist uh, is going to be the head of the final world system of government. There's going to be an image of some sort that's constructed, and everybody has to go along with the crowd. Worship the image. Receive the mark. By the way, you know that the Apostle John says that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world? Now let me tell you, the Antichrist in in Scripture, Antichrist represents both an empire and a man who's the head of that empire. But the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world. What is Antichrist? It means in the place of Christ. Uh, One who usurps the role of Christ. One who despises the gospel of Christ. One who denies the person of Jesus Christ. The spirit of Antichrist has always characterized the empires of men. Because men in their lostness and in their pride, in their blindness, they try to achieve unity. But you know something? The world can't achieve unity because of sin. Unity, the church is a wonderful picture of of unity because the unity is produced by the Spirit of God that indwells the church. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is what brings people together. And isn't it an amazing thing when you consider the remarkable diversity of the body of Christ? The body of Christ is made up of people of every color, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. There's a great unity that's characteristic of the church And it amazes me, it doesn't matter wherever I've been on a mission field, I've been able to worship with believers in a different part of the world, even though I may not share their culture, even though I may not speak their language, there's something about this deep abiding relationship that we have, this kindred spirit that we have, it's the spirit of God who lives in us, that unites us. And Satan tries to ape that, he tries to mimic that. Martin Luther called him the great ape of God which means that the devil's never had an original idea. But he takes that which is God's and he seeks to pervert it and twist it and that kind of thing. The world will never achieve unity apart from bowing in submission to Jesus Christ. The world can come up with all kinds of images and force people to bow before those images, but it will be a false unity. So the image of a wicked king. Now, notice how that's followed up by the threat of a fiery death. Those that don't bow before the image are threatened with the furnace. So after having summoned all of his government officials, the edict of the king demand that they bow down to the image in a show of solidarity. And you'll notice that Nebuchadnezzar has his herald or crier issue the command to the crowd. Which it's interesting to me that all of the world's false images have their pulpiteers. 
all of the false gods of this world have their preachers. The God of success, the God of money, the God of popularity. Various images that are, that are rooted in pride and unbelief. They all have their chief pulpiteers. Hollywood is full of its pulpiteers who issue their siren call calling upon the world to bow down to the images that they bow down to. It's not limited to Hollywood, but the media of men. Pop icons, false prophets. But notice how sweeping Nebuchadnezzar's decree is. Verse 4, you were commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image. Nebuchadnezzar calls for an orchestra of sorts to be put together. When the band begins to play, everyone was commanded to fall down before the image. Refusal to do so meant death in the furnace. Bow down or die. Those were the only two options. Now here's what I want you to see. All of this meant a very high-pressure situation for these three Hebrew young men whose names are not even mentioned in chapter 3 yet. Their names aren't mentioned until you get to verse 12. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had resolved in their heart to worship the Lord God. Their faith put them on a collision course with the culture of Babylon. Now, you remember what we already saw about them back in chapter 1. And how they were pressured to conform to Babylon's way of life. They were pressured to embrace Babylon's philosophies and worldview. They were pressured to conform in their thinking. After they'd been stolen away from from their home in Judah, they were uh, put in this system of cultural indoctrination. Then they were pressured to conform in their lifestyle. They were pressured to conform in their worship. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these were not their original names. This was their Babylonian names. Their original names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And their names had something to say about the God of heaven. Uh, Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. Azariah means the Lord is my helper. Babylon changes their names and gives them names that are based upon Babylon's deities. So Babylon had an identity that it wanted to attach to these three Hebrews. The fact that their names had been changed reveals this attempt to make them forget the God of Israel, to embrace the false gods of the culture, but they never did. Uh, They never lost sight of who they were. They would not bow down to Babylon's image even when faced with the threat of a fiery furnace. (laughs) The herald, the crier issues the command, but these guys don't bow down. Now let me ask you a question. Who are you listening to? Who are you taking your cues from? As far as what you believe and what you do with your life, how you live your life, the ideals that you embrace, the convictions that you have? Is the culture around you informing your belief system more than the word of God? Because I'm telling you something, it's easy for, we're being discipled whether we realize it or not. Either you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who is submitted to the word of God or you're being discipled by the culture around you. And the culture has so many different preachers and pulpiteers. You better be careful who you're listening to. So the image of a wicked king, the threat of a fiery furnace, and then notice the compliance of unbelieving people. The mass of people who had all been gathered there on the plain of Dura, they're given their orders. It's peer pressure at the highest level. They're faced with the decision to conform or become crispy critters. The king gives the band a cue. Verse 7, as soon as the people heard the sound of the music, then there it is, all the peoples, all the nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now let me tell you, as a worshiper of the God of heaven, that ought to break your heart. The thought that peoples, nations, and languages are worshiping something that is not the true God of heaven, that ought to break our hearts as those who know God, those who've been saved by Jesus. Folks, our God is the only one worthy of the world's worship. False gods, images that man constructs in his blindness, in his lostness, they're not worthy of the worship of people. Only God is worthy of worship. Only God is the living God. Only God is worthy to be praised. And, and, and let me tell you, part of what really the main, uh, the main fuel for an evangelistic fervor in our hearts as God's people is that we long to see people bow the knee to Jesus Christ. We long to see Jesus enthroned in the hearts of people. So everybody bows down to the image here with the exception of three. The crowd complies because they didn't want to face the furnace, but... As the text later reveals, there are three young worshipers of God there in the crowd who are left standing when the rest of society falls to its knees before the image. And imagine how they stood out in stark contrast to the crowd. Thousands, perhaps, are on their faces bowing before the image, and here you have these three young men who've determined that they will not bow even though they're aware of the consequences. And it all emphasizes the fact that standing up for God and standing up for what's right, often it's going to be lonely activity. Sometimes you're the only one who's standing. Sometimes it means that you're singled out for your faith. Sometimes it seems that you're you're viewed as being a person that's just making waves. Why don't you just go along with everybody else? Why make waves? But the truth is, folks, there are times in every life, every believer's life, when to do what's right, we cannot hide in the crowd. It'd be very easy for us to just want to hide in the crowd, especially in view of what's going on in our culture today. The various movements that are afoot, trying to unite people behind various agenda. Let me tell you something, it's time for God's people to stand up and be willing to go against the crowd and to preach what's right and to stand for what's right, even if it means a furnace, even if it means you're facing the heat in today's cancel culture. Let me tell you something, Martin Luther, he knew what it meant to stand alone in a crowd. 1521, when Luther was there at the uh, Imperial Diet of Arms, standing before a council of religious authorities who were calling upon him to recant his belief in the doctrine of justification by faith. You know what Luther said? He said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. 
He said, you can threaten me, you can do whatever you want, but my conscience is bound to the word of God. I cannot recant anything. To do so would mean to go against conscience. And listen, it's neither right nor is it safe. Thank God Luther wasn't so concerned for his skin and saving his own skin that he was willing to stand up for what was right, the truth of justification by faith alone. And Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other. William Tyndall was someone else who knew what it meant to stand, even alone. William Tyndall had this conviction that the Bible uh, ought to belong to every person. Every person ought to have an a- access to God's word in a language that they could understand. He committed his life to translating the scripture into English. And he did it in defiance of King Henry VIII. He held this deep conviction that the average Englishman should be able to pick up a copy of God's word and read it and understand it so that he might obey it. But he paid dearly for his convictions. In 1536, he was tied to a stake, strangled with a chain. Then he was lit on fire. And the last words that William Tyndall ever spoke were these words, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Now let me tell you, sometimes standing alone means that all eyes are on you. Sometimes standing alone means that you're standing and no one else is watching. Standing for truth in your home, leading your family to serve God, to worship God, to not bow down to the idols of the world. You know what? There may not be a whole lot of people who are watching. It may just be you and your family that know the stand that you're taking for what's right. But let me tell you, The Bible says that there's someone who's always watching. The Bible says in Psalm 34 that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. Jesus told the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, he says, I know your works. I know what you're enduring patiently for my sake. Now all this brings up a question, and the question is, why is it that so many are willing to cave to cultural pressure? And let's just be honest, there's a lot of cultural pressure on Christians these days wanting us to cave when it comes to our convictions, wanting us to cave when it comes to what we believe about gender, what we believe about human sexuality, what we believe about the nature of the church, what we believe about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Why are so many willing to cave? What is it about the allure of popularity that leads people to go along with the crowd? I'll tell you what it is. Nobody wants to be singled out or disliked for their faith. There's not a single person in this room who relishes in the fact of being thought weird in the eyes of the world because it's an uncomfortable place to be. We all desire to be liked And often it's this desire to be accepted by the world that leads us to incrementally and subtly compromise in our faith. And before you know it, you find yourself on your face before a false image. It's what C.S. Lewis called the inner ring. Uh, His book, uh, The Weight of Glory, it's made up of nine different essays that Lewis wrote during World War II in defense of the Christian faith. And one of the essays that he wrote was called The Inner Ring. And basically, C.S. Lewis said that inner rings exist in the institutions of man. He said the desire to belong leads a person, not at first to some great wickedness, 
but to the incremental compromise of truth and goodness required in order to be accepted by the insiders, leading at last to complete capitulation to the forces of evil. So this idea of wanting to be accepted by, you know, the inside club, I want to I be with the who's who's, leads people to come up with all kinds of justifications for their lack of conviction. It's how the church has always subtly embraced liberalism, by the way. It's never been a wholesale plunge into liberalism. It's always just been a slow, gradual leak. This desire to be accepted by the world often leads the church to slowly compromise in its convictions. It's not popular to take a stand uh, that marriage is between one man and one woman. It's not popular these days to take a stand that homosexuality is a sin. It's not, a, it's not popular these days to take a stand uh, when it comes to the truth of God's word. And desire to want to be accepted leads people to often begin traveling a road of compromise. And before they know it, they're on their face, bowing down to an image that's usurped the rightful place reserved by Jesus Christ alone. Now, you come back to this passage, there are three men who are standing when a crowd of, some have even estimated a crowd of 300,000 people on the plain of Dura are bowing down, going along with the king's edict. But there are three men who refuse to bow down And the reason is they bow to a much higher authority. And to bow down to a lesser authority in defiance of that higher authority is an act of high treason when it comes to heaven. And they refuse to do that. Now this refusal means that they're going to become marked men by society. But folks, better to be rejected by society and accepted by God than to be accepted by society and rejected by God. I'd rather have the commendation of heaven on my life than to simply receive the accolades of the world which are passing away and will not last. Now, let me give you two final thoughts by way of application, and I'm through this morning. All right, this is not on the screen, but if you want to write it down, let me give these to you. Uh, Number one, this fallen world that we live in constructs images that it demands we worship. This fallen world is controlled by the present ruler of this fallen world system, Satan, the devil. And the world is constantly coming up with images that it demands we worship and embrace. Images may not necessarily be a literal image. But it may be an ideology. It may be a philosophy. It may be an agenda. But it's rooted in unbelief. It's rooted in pride. It's hostile to the God of the Bible. The world is exerting pressure on us to embrace these ideas. And there always have been pressures on God's people to compromise in their faith. Because, you know what? Even we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And because we're not of the world, we experience pressure as we live in the world. And the world's constantly trying to pressure us and press us into its mold. It wants us to conform to its ideas. It wants us to conform to its way of living. It wants us to conform in our worship. 
The early church experienced this in Rome uh, when the Caesars of Rome demanded, just offer a little pinch of incense when you worship to the Caesar. Just a little pinch of incense. Go along with everybody else. Put Jesus in the pantheon of Roman gods. But you know what? You want to know why Christians were persecuted in Rome? It was because they understood what Jesus is Lord really meant. To say that Jesus is Lord put them at odds with wicked decrees from Caesars who demanded worship. And the world didn't understand that, and the world persecuted them for that. But ladies and gentlemen, the cry of the church has been, it is now, and it will forever be, Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And that means it will put you on a collision course when it comes to images that the world tends to erect for itself. So the world is constantly constructing images. Now, the second thought is this. Faith in Jesus Christ demands that we confront these images and we refuse to bow down. Now that means you're going to stand out just like these three will do. It may mean rejection by the world. It may lead to a furnace of some kind. But remember what Jesus said. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Allegiance to him as Lord means that you're going to butt heads with the world and the world's value system. Your worldview will collide with the worldview of the world. We've got to prepare now to be vilified, hated, pursued by the world as men and women who bow only to Jesus Christ. And folks, it demands courage. That's why the apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter six, finally my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. If you're faced with the pressure to bend and bow and you feel like you're about to cave in, flee to Jesus Christ who is your strength. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. That means Christ has given you something to combat the images and the ideologies and the false philosophies of the world. He's given you gospel armor. And he just simply tells you, having done all, just stand. Just stand. And I just want to ask you this question this morning as a believer. How are you standing Because whether we realize it or not, the music is playing its siren song in our society today. The devil has given the world its agenda. The image has been built. The masses are bowing down to it. The heat is on. What will you do as a believer? Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? You know what Peter told some believers who were under pressure? And I kind of think that Peter, as he's writing 1 Peter, he has Daniel chapter 3 in mind. Because Peter says to believers in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. In other words, he's saying the furnace is expected. You ought to expect the furnace as a follower of Jesus Christ in a world. Jesus said, if you want to follow him, you pick up your cross and you follow him. Obedience to him is not easy. But you know something, aren't you grateful that you're not alone in the furnaces of life? 
Aren't you grateful there's a fourth man in the fire? You know, Jesus was tempted in every single way like we are, but he was without sin. In other words, that means that I've got a Savior who's been in the furnace. I've got a Savior who on the cross experienced the heat. The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus at the cross in my place so that I could have his life, so that I could have eternal life, so that I could be forgiven of my sin, so that his spirit could come to live in me. And that doesn't mean I'm always going to be spared from the furnaces of life in the temporary sense, but you know what? It does mean that I've been saved from the eternal fires of hell. And there is something a whole lot worse than the temporal fires of life. It's the fires of eternity. And if you die without Christ, my friend, that is your destiny. And I, uh, I want to urge you to believe the gospel while you have time and opportunity. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Those who are watching online this morning or whenever, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me just urge you in an attitude of repentance and faith, confess your sin and the depth of your need before God and cry out to Jesus who will save you. And in faith, believe that he died on the cross as your substitute. And that God raised him from the dead. He's ascended to heaven. He's exalted. Confess him as Lord of your life. Now, Lord, as we pray this morning, we're so thankful, Lord, for the truth of your word. The world around us is constantly constructing some type of image, Lord, that it wants us to bow down to. We don't want to be swept up with the crowd of unbelief. But Lord, as believers, may we stand out for Christ's sake. May the thought of the masses of humanity bowing down to false images, and false ideas, and false gods, Lord, may this, may this break our hearts. Because you alone, O oh Lord, are worthy of worship. You alone, O oh Lord, gave your one and only Son to suffer and die for sin so that humanity could have hope, so that humanity could be saved. So Lord, whatever furnace that men and women may feel like they're in this morning as believers, for the Christian businessman or woman who has had to take a stand for what's right, even though it's led to scrutiny, for parents who are standing up for what's right even though they're facing peer pressure from unbelieving friends. Lord, would you give them strength? We love you, Lord Jesus. We make our prayer in your precious name. Amen.